Mark had, uh, Mark Johnson said that he'd like to study Isaiah, and so we're going to start into Isaiah tonight, and we're on Sunday night now at service, because Jack and Louise are there at services on Sunday, we were into Isaiah in our going through the Bible using the chronological Bible, and the study we're using there in the chronological Bible, we're taking Isaiah along with the history, and then along with Micah at the same time and a few of the other sources that will be worked in with it. And I've decided then to do this by studying just strictly from Isaiah in your regular Bible. We're going to take it starting with chapter 1 and, and going through it. Um, <coughs> Isaiah has a, a potential of being one of the most, maybe the most important books of prophecy that you can read in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, scholars for years have referred to Isaiah as the Dean of the Prophets. Uh, Isaiah is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. The most quoted prophet in the New Testament. Uh, in John 12 and verse 41, John referred to Isaiah as one who saw the glory of Christ. He quotes from Isaiah 53 and then makes a statement in, in John 12, 41 that Isaiah said that because that he saw the glory of Christ. And so he's extremely important to us today because of the fact that he lived so many years before the New Testament, and the dating is 740 to about 700, maybe 690 B.C., okay? 740 down to possibly 690 B.C., although some scholars would end it about 700 B.C., okay? I, it, it's somewhere in that area. So at this time... We've got all these prophecies in that will be quoted in the New Testament. He has more to say about the Messiah than any other individual prophet. Okay, more to say about the Messiah to come than any other individual prophet. He gives us more of a fuller development of the Messiah than any other one in the Old Testament. Now, another reason that Isaiah is important, in fact, one thing to keep in mind as we study him, as was any prophet, the prophet that you study was not primarily a spokesman for future generation. Uh, he thought of himself, and he was primarily a spokesman to the people of that day. Okay, he was primarily a spokesman to them, and then he's going to look forward and say some things that come on down in the future, but he's primarily a spokesman for the people of that day. Isaiah is important for maybe another reason to us, and that is the, the similar circumstance that he found himself in, uh, in comparison to what we have right now in our own country. All right, let me give you, a, if you take a notes, a couple other uh, background material. Right at the time that Isaiah was going to the to Judah, Amos and Hosea had gone to the ten tribes of Israel. Now you can date Amos about 755 B.C. and Hosea from 750 to 725 B.C. And so the split occurred. Uh, in the days of Rehoboam, where the ten tribes split from the two. And what happened in the ten tribes that is called Israel is that they were worshiping Jehovah, but they were doing it through idolatry. Okay, They had a golden calf set up to represent or be symbolic of Jehovah, but even though they were in idolatry, they were still worshiping Jehovah. Later on, during the reign of Ahab, Baal worship would also be brought in. Uh, along with what uh, Jeroboam had set up in the golden calf and the worship of Jehovah. And so, during this period of time, Amos and Hosea go to the ten tribes of Israel that have split away. All right, now, Isaiah is going to preach primarily to Judah. Now, he's going to say some things about and concerning uh, the ten tribes, but primarily his message is going to Judah. Okay, at the same time that Isaiah is preaching to Judah, Micah is. And you can date Micah 735 to 700 B.C. So what God has then is Amos and Hosea that have preached the ten, to the ten tribes. Uh, Amos is actually from Judah and goes in and preaches to the ten tribes. Hosea is from Israel. Then you've got Isaiah and Micah that are preaching to Judah. Okay, the reigning king at this time, at the time Isaiah starts, uh, Uzziah. Uzziah is on the throne. He came on the throne in 767 B.C., and he reigned to 740 B.C. Okay, from 7, so you can see that 
He reigned right down to the year that Isaiah started to preach. Okay, and we'll note that. Look at verse 1 of, of Isaiah. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Okay? Now, Uzziah then, he is in his very last year when Isaiah uh, begins to prophesy for God and to, to the people of Judah. He's saying that Uzziah was in his last 740 year. to uh, uh, seven, something, 740? Or? Yeah. I, I uh, let me hear, see here. 767 to 740. Right. 767 to 740 B.C. Now, uh, Israel uh, had Jeroboam II from 782 to 753 B.C. Okay? 782 to 753 B.C. Now, that's the only two I'm going to deal with tonight. And then uh, next week, we'll take on a few, few of the other leaders. But as far as any background on it. Now, at the time that Isaiah starts to prophesy, the big power in the world is Assyria. Okay? Assyria is the power in the world. Now, let me give you four rulers of Assyria. The latter four that's going to become important to us in our study. In other words, we're getting now just the background information that we're going to use in the study. Tiglath-Pileser, <clears throat> known in the Bible as Pul, okay? He's known by two names. A history knows him primarily as Tiglath-Pileser. Uh, Josephus identifies him with Pool in the Old Testament. It's T-I-G-L-A-T-H dash. T-I-G-L-A-T-H dash. And then small, P-I-L-E-S-E-R. Tiglath-Pileser III, 745 to 727 B.C. So you can see he's he the is ruler of Assyria. Of Assyria, right. At the time that Isaiah starts to prophesy. Okay, now... After him was Shalmaneser, S-H-A-L-M-A-N-E-S-A-R, S-H-A-L-M-A-N-E-S-E-R, Shalmaneser the fifth, from 727 to 722 B.C. Okay, now Shalmaneser is the one that would start the invasion against the ten tribes that led in their total defeat by Syria, carrying into captivity and becoming the history of the lost ten tribes of Israel. Okay, after Shalmaneser, by the way, there's archaeological discoveries where we have actually uh, written material on uh, monuments or tablets where Shalmaneser identifies several of the Israelite kings, identifies his war with them, and his defeating of some of those kings. S-H-A-L-M-A-N-E-S-E-R. S-H-A-L-M-A-N-E-S-E-R. Okay, and now Sargon II. Sargon II from 721 to 705 B.C. Now, up until 1843, the only mention in all history of Sargon was in Isaiah, the 20th chapter, okay? There was no mention, no record. Uh, historians said that this was an example of, a, of, of an error in the Bible because he was not known to history, okay? That's Sargon II. In 1843, an archaeology by the archaeologist by the name of Bada, in uncovering the ruins in and around Assyria, came up with the information that uh, pinpointed Sargon II as a great ruler of Assyria and also dealt with his relationship with Israel. But I'm saying that until that archaeological discovery in 1843, there was no record in any other historical source of Sargon except in the Bible. And historians uh, used that as an example of an error in Isaiah, that he had a king that really didn't even exist and some exploits. And, and they used that as evidence that it was not written by somebody who was contemporary but rather written by somebody years later. And you see how this is important to scholars who do not want to accept anything with prophecy. They've always got to prove that the book is written later down the pike, okay? Sennacherib, S-E-N-N-A-C-H-E-R-I-B, S-E-N-N-A-C-H-E-R-I-B, Sennacherib. All right, Sennacherib is king from 705 to 6. 81. 
So you can see that through these four, we're going to totally cover uh, the period that Isaiah prophesied. All right, now the reason they're so important is that Isaiah is the Rome of their day. They are the dominant force in the world. Let me give you a little background on, on, uh, on Assyria. The dominant force of that day, Assyria had a reputation of being the cruelest nation that had ever come into existence. Uh, they, whenever they uh, conquered, and they put all their energy in military exploits. I mean, everything they had in manpower and finances, everything went to military. And their whole theory about military was to be as cruel as possible. In other words, when other countries that they were going to fight against considered fighting Assyria, they wanted them to be scared and to think of Assyria as somebody you just didn't want to mess with. And so what they would do when they would conquer a country, they would treat them as cruelly as possible. I mean, they would kill them, and I won't even go into all the different ways that they killed people and all the things that they did, but I mean, it wasn't just a matter of taking lives. They took it in as horrible a way as they possibly could. And later on, we'll get to a section where when Sennacherib comes against Jerusalem and he wants them to surrender, he, he will remind them of how he's conquered all the powers and what they have done to them in order to try to scare them. And then uh, we have Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet with the job of persuading the people not to give in to him, but to go ahead and stand, go ahead and stand their ground. But anyway, to this day, historians look back on Assyria as an extremely cruel nation, never been surprised for their cruelty. All right. Did you say it was Shalmaneser was one, Shalmaneser was one that, the Assyrian leader that took the uh, ten tribes into captivity? Okay, he was the one that led the, the, the first stage of the fighting against them. In other words, when the war broke out, he led the way. But then he died. And uh, it, it's debatable whether he was still on the throne or Sargon II was at the time that they took uh, it, the ten tribes. Sargon II came on in 721. And somewhere between 722 and 721 is when Israel failed. And so Sargon, in his writings, claims the victory for himself. In other words, he claims that he is the one that did it. Uh, in the writings we have of Shalmaneser, he, he takes credit for it. So each of them want to take credit for it. Both had a part. Uh, each are ready to take full credit. And by the way, when you read the historical records of these kings, they're very biased, and they're designed to tell you about all their exploits. Okay, now Assyria... You can understand then why that when Hosea, for example, told the ten tribes that they didn't repent, that God was going to send Assyria against them, how it would really strike fear into their hearts because they knew what an ungodly country this was. Now, Assyria is also the country that Jonah went to. Remember, Jonah went and preached to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And to give you an idea of how terrible it was, remember that uh, Jonah, didn't, Jonah didn't want to go. And the reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh was because he knew that if there was any repentance that took place, that God would spare it, and he didn't want it spared. So here's the place is so ungodly and so terrible that a prophet of God doesn't want them to repent. He wants them to, he wants them to just go ahead and stay that way so God will destroy them. When now, when did Jonah preach there? Somewhere, now that's, that's hard to be exact, somewhere probably in the 780s. Somewhere probably in the 780s. Okay, now, here's what was interesting to me, that how Jonah, from a historical standpoint, could go in uh, to uh, Nineveh and get a place like this to repent. And they were the strong country at, at that particular time. But in reading the, the history and, and, and from the information that we have through the latest archaeological discoveries and all, there has been some light shed on it. Assyria had been powerful for a number of years before these four kings. And then what happened, they went through a period of weakness during the time that Jonah was prophet. And there was a plague that went throughout the land, sort of like we've got AIDS, sort of like they had leprosy in the Middle Ages in, in Europe. But there have been any number of times throughout history where some plague has, has gone throughout the land and just wiped out a big percent of the population. And so at the time that Jonah went, Assyria in many ways was pretty ripe. Because it wasn't just Jonah coming in under very unusual circumstances, but Assyria was actually in a weakened state, 
and a plague had gone through the land for a number of years, and thousands and thousands and thousands of them had died. And so they were in a very weakened state. In fact, it was during this weakened state that uh, the ten tribes had reasserted itself and took their border back. In other words, Assyria had come down and conquered part of the ten tribes then. And they had reasserted themselves and, and got their land back out to its border during this weakened state. And then it was during that period of time that Jonah went in, and we have the repentance of Nineveh at that time. Is, uh, Assyria, is it in the same location as Syria, the country is today? Is it kind no, of north? It's west of Israel. It's just west. Just west of Israel. You mean east, right? East. Being the sea. Yeah. <laughs> to the right, right. But Assyria would set west. He's saying that the Assyria is west west. of that Israel borders the Mediterranean Sea on the west. Assyria is east of Israel. To the right of it, to like the northwest, isn't it? I'm sorry, to the northeast. We got Jamaica. I could be wrong. If it's to the northwest, the Mediterranean is there. It might be to the north of the Mediterranean, to the northwest. I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I should have well, great things we'll, we'll get on. Uh, rather than, we'll get back on that, Steve, rather than lose it, if that's okay, as to the other okay. But I think I was going on a statement made by the prophet in the book itself as to power, the power that was coming from the West. But uh, anyway, we'll get, we'll get back on that, if that's okay. All right, now, here's why that... Uh, the book, again, can have some importance to us that uh, at this time that Isaiah comes on the scene, Judah is very, very, very financially prosperous, okay? And so is the Ten Tribes. Uh, financially, everything is going great. And so that uh, you would think that uh, the things would be right with Jehovah and the worship and all, and the same with the Ten Tribes. But the history of Israel is one that shows that in times of prosperity, they were spiritually at their worst. It's just a fact of life. That in times of prosperity, they were at their worst. That uh, And God reminded them this as they went into the land in the first place. In Deuteronomy, the eighth chapter, that they would become wealthy and then began to attribute it to other sources other than God. So Israel, the, the both Judah and Israel, as a result of pursuing the principles in the commandments of God, actually created a lot of good qualities that led to strength in their nation. And they became a very prosperous nation. But then in that prosperity, they gave credit to their idolatrous, to the various idols, and they gave credit to themselves, and they began to even deny Jehovah. And they, they began to reach a point where they didn't study the law. Uh, it was so bad in Israel that Hosea had said, in Hosea 4 and 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But in their time of prosperity, they got away from the law, they got away from studying, and they got away from God. And so we have a situation where on the one hand, they are materially very prosperous. But on the other hand, they're going farther and farther away from God. And again, very interesting because... It so much parallels what we have in our own country, that uh, we were at our most spiritual at a time when we were not the greatest country on the face of the earth, and a time when we were not prosperous. We were a spiritual country. Religion was literally thriving in our country, and the, the Bible was well thought of. In fact, you can go back in the 1800s during the uh, Reformation movement, and and literally, they would go in and hold meetings all over the country, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people would be baptized at these meetings. Uh, we talk about three-day meetings and one-week meetings and ten-day meetings. Uh, actually, any, any more today, there's uh, three or four days is it. Back then, they had 30-day meetings. Uh, and literally, hundreds of people would be converted. But anyway, that our country started off based on the principles of the Bible. Uh, our law system went for years and, and only respected adultery as a reason for divorce. For example, in, there was a time in New York State where the only reason that they would grant divorce unofficially was adultery. And our entire law system was patterned after the law of the Bible, our whole, whole system of justice and law. So we become great, we become extremely prosperous, and then what happens? We kick God out. Uh, we, we kicked him totally out of our education system. We've kicked the Bible totally out of our education system. We've kicked uh, the Bible out of our history and the history books that have been written for a number of years. 
there's very little mention of religion whatsoever. Uh, you would never, never gather the fact that 80% of our population professes belief in Jesus and 95% in God. You would never gather that from studying the history that's been written for a whole generation now. And so a good example is uh, your, the TV. Try to think of a single solitary program where there is an avowed Christian that's, on the, that's part of the program. Where is that family that goes to church? We think of Bill Cosby as the most one of the most wholesome things going on TV. When does Bill Cosby and his family go to church? When do they have prayer? When do they give thanks for their food? Or, or, or when, does, when does their belief in God make any decision for them? None. It doesn't happen. So in, in all of TV, uh, of the prime time, your major networks, there's just, uh, if there's any mention of God or the Bible or Christianity, it's negative. It's always this priest that is uh, committing adultery or this evangelist that is out taking thousands and thousands of dollars from people or something of that nature. But Christianity is never presented uh, in, a, in a positive way so far as our TV. Well, what is true there is also true of our history books. And so God is on the way out. Well, then the end result, what happened in our society? When we kick the Bible out and we kick God out. You see what happened What happened to crime, what happened to corruption, what happened to, to everything involving morality when God kicked out. It's all, it's all on the demise. All right, so if you look at our own country, you get a good idea of the day that Isaiah was preaching. It was the same way, that they had become great by following the principles of the law of Moses. And they had been blessed with some great kings like David, for example, who was a strong believer in God and a strong believer in the law. Having become great and having become prosperous and rich, they turned their back on God, they turned their back on the law, and now we have them in a state of decay at the time Isaiah goes. So as you go through there and you listen to his message, there's several things we might learn. We, we love God and we love his will. And in our society, what is our responsibility? What, what do we do as Christians? Uh, do we just simply go to church on Sunday and Wednesday? Or do we actively speak out against the wrong things in our society? Okay, Isaiah will, will fill the bill for us. That uh, what, what did he do in a society that would almost parallels our own society? All right, another thing you're going to notice about Isaiah, and I think important for Christians also. On the one hand, he was a very, very spiritual person, a very devout lover of God and the law. No prophet ever lived for God that was more successful than Isaiah. He, he is successful. And of course, we're studying his material right now. Isaiah was extremely well studied. I mean, he was extremely well studied. He, didn't, uh, he knew everything that was going on. He was in tune to the books of his day. He was extremely studied in the law and all the material that had been written before him. Uh, Isaiah was in tune to his own times. He knew about the surrounding powers. He knew who their leaders were. He knew what was going on in the world that he was in. He knew what was going on in his own. I'm saying that uh, personally, the, I believe the attitude that you can just simply uh, forget about the world out here and just sit here and study the Bible is erroneous. I think you have to be in tune to the world. You need to know the news. You need to know who the great powers are and what they're thinking. Just like now, we need to know what's going on in Eastern Europe and, and in Africa and all over the place because we, we've got a job to do as, as Christians. And Isaiah was extremely knowledgeable in the world that he lived in. In other words, he was a, he was a statesman uh, in, in his world. So when we're looking at the material, also look at it from the standpoint of this is the way that he chose to approach a society that's very similar to our own. Uh, people have become prosperous as a result of following God, putting in practice principles of the law. Having become prosperous, they had turned pagan. They turned away from God, turned away from his law. Isaiah lived in that world. He loved God. He loved the law. And yet he wanted to reach the world that he was in. Okay, now, skip the, over to the sixth chapter. And what we're going over there for is, it's in the sixth chapter that it's contained the, where, the vision where Isaiah was called of God. Okay, chapter 6, and you'll see here, look at 1 and 1, he identifies that he begins preaching during the reign of Isaiah, and I told you that it would be in the last year of his reign. Now here Isaiah 
here the sixth chapter, and again, uh, maybe it would be better if this was, you know, right there at, at chapter one, if we was going to arrange it in the way that it, it really should be. Okay, in, in the uh, first verse, uh, let's start with uh, somebody over. Steve, you want to read, uh, let's see, on down, we'll just start, start reading to hit a good, uh, good spot there, and then somebody else pick up. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among the people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See... This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise they may see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will be taken again. It will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Okay. Look at this. Notice that first part of uh, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord's seed. In other words, what Isaiah is describing to you is similar to think of the book of Revelation where John saw a vision and then he describes to you. And so Isaiah is, is seeing a vision. And at the time that Isaiah is called by God, he is a developed, well-studied individual who's in tune to the world that he lives in. He's very concerned. He's a very religious individual. And so God chose to call Isaiah as a prophet. And so in calling him, he sees the vision. And he sees the glory and the grandeur of God. And then he takes a look at all of this. And he's overwhelmed, first of all, by his own sin. And then God, then it's made clear in the, in the vision that he can be cleansed of his sin. He sees the sin of the people. And so for the, it seems like that it totally is impressed on his mind how sinful that mankind is in contrast to a holy God. And then God lets him know that he needs somebody to go for him. And so we have that statement, then I heard the voice, verse 8, of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Now that who will go for us, we won't get into that a lot right now. That's one of those passages like in Genesis that uh, where the us, God is used as a plural, and that we're made in the image of that plural God. Again, in the 11th chapter, when he destroys the city of Babel, you've got this term us. And so I'm saying that on the pages of the Old Testament, you have a plural word representing the Godhead. Okay, that plural word representing the Godhead. So who shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here am I send me. Okay, then God tells him to go and to preach to the people. And so Isaiah's a man that's developed. He's got a task. Uh, God needs somebody to go, and he volunteers for the job. He says, send me. Now, notice also the passage here in uh, uh, go to this people, and that they will be ever hearing, but never understanding, ever seeing, but never perceiving, make the heart of this people callous. Remember, Jesus quotes this in the New Testament, and applies it to people of his day. Mark? Okay. I notice, a, I got a note, footnote, it gives it two ways to say it. 
why is it not clear how how the words are whatever he says be ever hearing he says make their eyes close you know all that kind of stuff instead of saying you know you will be ever hearing and ever perceiving you see what i'm saying it's it's like in this this first here reading, says make the heart of this right, right. make their their ears dull. and then at the bottom you have a footnote that has the the rendering that's in like matthew and stuff like that two says you will be ever hearing but never understanding is that not clear in like the manuscripts and stuff? Well, what, what the this is, the, the Septuagint is a translation from the Hebrew manuscript. Okay, it's a Greek translation from the Hebrew manuscript. What you're getting here is a Hebrew manuscript. In other words, your, your Old Testament is taken from the Hebrew manuscripts. All right, now the Septuagint is a translation from. What you have there is interpretation, which is accurate. In other words, that, that when he says met this, people, God wasn't going to do anything mysterious to make their hard heart or anything like that. But it would become that way in response to the preaching itself. And so what you have in the Septuagint's account is really an interpretation of what of the Hebrew. Okay. In fact, uh, when he says, make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull, that's important to understand because uh, some who uh, teach from the persuasion of Calvin, uh, for example, the, that led to the doctrine, once saved, always saved, or you're predestined to be saved or lost, would use a passage like this that, you know, God opens the mind of some and he closes others. He makes others hard. But it's really not that way. It's in the same vein where he made Pharaoh's heart. You read that statement that he made Pharaoh's hard heart. But when you look at the whole context, it's what God did and then the way that Pharaoh responded to it in the same way that you may say something that makes me mad. But you haven't done anything mystically to make me mad. You've said something and I've made the decision to respond to it by getting mad. And so I can say that you made me mad. In the same way, Isaiah is going to preach and they don't want to hear the kind of preaching he's going to do. He's going to rebuke their sins and demand repentance and tell them that God is going to carry them into captivity and destroy them. And so the end result is that many of them, instead of repenting, are actually going to get mad and want to actually shut him up. And so it's, but it, from, it's, it's met from the standpoint of their response to what he actually said. Okay, anybody else with anything on that, on Isaiah's commission and when God called him? Okay, let's go back then to the first chapter. Why is that out of order? Is that there no particular reason for it? Or just... All right, now Isaiah, remember, did not sit down and just write this like you write a book. This is a collection of sermons that was preached by Isaiah over a 40 or 50 year period. Okay? And Isaiah probably is not the one who arranged this in the way that we have it now. In other words, I don't believe that he did personally. I believe he's, he is the author of the material uh, he preached it over this period of time, uh, but the the arrangement itself uh, does not belong to him so far as in the, in the way that it's put put together. But see, it starts here, and it has a starting point of uh, uh, telling you that he reigned under those particular people, and then he gives a sermon. Then, for whatever reason, they chose to put the calling there, uh, whereas maybe you know you or I we would have had that first verse and then put the calling you know in chapter six. Okay, another thing is you look at Isaiah, that first verse. The vision he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem during the reigns of those four kings, kings of Judah. Obviously, you can see there that, that uh, to understand Isaiah fully, we would have to be familiar with the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Okay, and then what I've just given you is just simply a, a background of their situation and all at that time. And as we go through here, we'll look at some situations in the historical part concerning the reigns of these people. But he, he takes for granted that you know, keep, see, the people of his day did. And he takes for granted that you know something of the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So did this all come to him after the things were done with? I mean, he, since he states all four of the kings, he, he started after Uzziah, right? Yeah. Well, he started in the last year of Isaiah. That's when he got his call. 
Oh, okay. This would have been the last. In other words, although it's there, it would have been the last thing written. In other words, when you when you write the book, uh, obviously he's already lived, and then he looks. He's, you're looking oh, okay. back yeah, and, and putting I'm that, sorry. you know. Okay, and then there's a possibility that uh, that somebody else put that first verse there also, and, and letting you know this was a collection of Isaiah sermons. All right, now. One other thing, then, before we get into it on the, the dating itself on, on Isaiah. Number one, you have a complete copy of Isaiah in the Greek Septuagint that was translated between 280 and 240 uh, B.C., a complete copy of Isaiah. Number two, you have a complete copy of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the manuscript itself is two centuries before Christ, okay? The manuscript itself is two centuries before Christ. What was the uh, date on the Greek Septuagint? About 280 to 240 B.C. And that's a translation from Hebrew manuscripts, and you have a complete copy there. And then the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, you have a complete copy of Isaiah, and the, the actual scroll itself is two centuries before Christ. In other words, I'm saying that when you say that Isaiah was written a long time before Christ, that is an absolute factual statement. No, no theory. Now, until the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, the oldest copy of Isaiah that we had was the 9th century A.D. It was a copy, but that was the oldest copy in the 9th century A.D. When we uncovered the Dead Sea Scrolls and compared it with the oldest copy, the improvements that could be made in translations was negligible. All right, and what that shows then for le is that for 1,100 years, there has been perfect copying of this material, and it shows you just how exact these people were in copying the material itself, that there was just negligible improvements they could make after 1,100 years. Now, another way that you study uh, Isaiah from a dating standpoint, obviously you cannot quote something that doesn't exist, and so you can start in Hebrew history and go, and, and go back through the years. Also, language is living. And just like our English language today is different than in Shakespeare's time, and it's a whole lot different than in Chaucer's time in, in 1384. In fact, Chaucer is like reading Greek. I mean, it's like a foreign language, and yet that's the English of 1384. Well, the same was true of Hebrew. It's, it's a living language. And certain words are acquired, and certain words become obsolete. Isaiah is written in the language of his day. So the manuscript itself is written in the Hebrew of that time. And he writes as one that is fully contemporary and is cognizant of all the material at that time. In other words, he write things, writes things that we have since verified through archaeology that he couldn't have written, except he were writing of a, as a contemporary of that time. Okay, now, starting into one of the sermons that we have here, and we get an idea of the, the condition of Israel at this time. Okay, uh, starting with verse uh, 2. Uh, Brian, we'll start with you over there, and let's, let's come on around. In chapter 1? Uh-huh, chapter 1 and, uh, and verse 2. And just read to a good place to pause, and the next one, go ahead and read. Okay. <coughs> Hear, O heavens, listen to the word, for the Lord has spoken. I rear children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manager. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation. A people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Okay, somebody over there. Your country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate, is overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had, had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom, we, we would have become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have 
I've had enough of burnt offerings of ram and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of goats or of lambs. When you, when you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbath, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes before you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they should be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a harlot? She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murder. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore the Lord, the God, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove your impurities. I will restore your judges as in the days of old, your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Okay. Now notice the, the first statement here in uh, verse 2. I reared children and brought them up, but they rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its manger, but Israel does not know. My people does not understand. A sinful nation, a brood of evildoers. All right, remember what we said, that uh, that God had brought them to this prosperous state. They, they, they've never been more prosperous than this time in history. And so God, he, he has reared them, he's brought them, he's, he's blessed them, and they've become prosperous. And then what happened? In verse 2, they rebelled against him. And then to show how ridiculous and absurd that is, he says, the ox knows its master, the donkey its owner. In other words, even an ox or a donkey that is fed and kept knows who its owner is. Uh, the ox knows who feeds it. The donkey knows who feeds it. And he says, you're worse than an ox or a donkey. They, they know who feeds them and, and keeps them alive. And I did all this for you, and you have turned and rebelled against me. So you're acting in a more foolish way than a common animal. Okay, they have forsaken the Lord, verse 4. But then look at verse 5. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in your rebellion? In other words, that they were already starting to suffer the consequences of their sin. And he says, why should you be beaten anymore? In other words, the purpose for the punishment is to get them to repent. The sooner they would repent, the sooner the punishment could stop. And so he said, take a second look at yourself. Why do you persist, you know, that God doesn't want you to have to be punished like this, that you can stop the whole process by simply changing? Why do you, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in your rebellion? Now, he refers to them in, in terms where he compares them in verse 9 with Sodom and Gomorrah. He refers to their rulers as you rulers of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah. But then, notice what he says beginning with verse 11. He talks about their worship. And in their worship under the old law, they offered the sacrifices, they kept the, the new moons, uh, they kept their Sabbath days, and they had their various assemblies. And so what you have is people who on the one hand are out here living ungodly in their own personal life, but they're still worshiping God. And so they're going to the assembly, and they're going through all the rituals, they're offering their sacrifices, they're having their assemblies, they're keeping the new moon, they're doing the, the Sabbath day things, and yet all the time they're going through this ritual of worship to God, they're living and conducting themselves in an ungodly way. So notice his response to that. He said, uh, <clears throat> verse 13, stop bringing me meaningless offerings. In other words, your offerings are meaningless. I don't want them. Your incense is detestable to me. And so your offerings are meaningless. 
your incense is detestable. In other words, God actually hated their worship. New moon, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moons and festivals, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. So their very act of worship was hated by God. They've become a burden to me. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. And then he names the various things that they need to be doing. Verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. Okay, now, hold your place there and flip over to Amos. And remember we said that Amos had went to the ten tribes before Isaiah had gone to Judah and preached to them. And notice the similarity to the message. They're preaching to a similar situation in the sense that both groups of people are very prosperous. And at the same time they're prosperous, they're very ungodly. And although they're ungodly, they're continuing to worship God. Amos, the fifth chapter, and verse uh, 21. Okay, somebody want to read that in, uh, uh, Joe, you want to read that verse 21 uh, through verse 27. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your hearts. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the desert, O house of Israel. You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. All right, now notice the same thing in both passages, like verse 21. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. You bring bird offerings, I won't accept them. You, the choice fellowship offerings. He refers to their songs in verse 23 as so much noise. I'll not listen to the music of, of your hearts, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness, righteousness simply means doing what's right, like a never-ending stream. So, by the way, both of these passages are good if you're in a situation and you're wanting to talk to either a group of people or to an individual where on the one hand they're conducting their lives in an ungodly way, but on the other hand they're still worshiping God. They're, they're still going to the assembly, they're they're still praying. They're still going through all the various rituals, eating, eating the Lord's Supper, upholding baptism, whatever it is. But at the same time, they're conducting themselves in an ungodly way. Well, here's a plain statement that Isaiah said that God literally couldn't stand their worship. That it was an abomination to him. He, and, and their prayers were meaningless. It, it had no meaning to him whatsoever. In other words, we cannot live or conduct ourselves in an ungodly way at the same time worship God. They just say, I mean, if we're going to conduct ourselves on God the way, we either, we either ought to do one or two things, either repent or just leave God alone and, and quit dragging his name through the dirt. And that's what Isaiah is going to tell the people here, you know, that, that you can't do it. God just simply will not accept the worship. It's an, abom it's an abomination to it. Okay, now a key as to how the people could get at this state, we'll get it in Isaiah, but uh, it's a good passage in Hosea. My people are destroyed for a, a lack of knowledge. Hosea 4 and verse 6. In other words, they, they had their belief in God, but they were not teaching the law. They were not, not studying the word. And the end result is that everybody was just simply living whatever way he wanted to and wallowing in sin. But at the same time, they continued to pray to God and, and continued to, to state that they had belief in God. So, Belief in God goes hand in hand with walking with God. You cannot have God and not have his law. All right, a passage in the New Testament that is similar. In uh, Luke 6, verse 46, it's either 46 or 26, one or the other. Luke 6 and 46 or 26. Uh, why call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? In other words, he said uh, that the word Lord itself means master. And it's absurd to call me Lord and yet at the same time reject doing the things that I say.
Okay, anybody with any uh, comments on that first chapter? Before we have? Okay, let's end tonight's study then with this second chapter because we're going to see something here that uh, will be characteristic throughout the book. We mentioned at the start that Isaiah had a multitude of prophecies about the Messiah to come, about the church, the kingdom he would set up. It's interesting the way that these prophecies would come. Isaiah didn't just walk out and say, hey, here's a prophecy about the kingdom to come, or the Messiah. But they come from within a context of where Isaiah has rebuked sin, and he's talked to the people of the consequences of the sin. He's even told them they're going to be carried into captivity as a result of those sins. And then, from that background, with with a, a situation where they have left God and where they're in sin and they're going into captivity, Isaiah looks forward to something that's a lot better. And he looks, uh, and keep in mind that you still have a remnant here that's righteous and believe in God, and, and you've got to give them some hope. Because, I mean, things look bad, the consequences of sin are there. And so from this background of rebuking sin, telling them the consequences of that sin, then Isaiah would look forward to a time when it was going to be better and when righteousness was going to have more to do with, with the people of God. And so that's what we run into starting the second chapter. Uh, Jack, would you uh, read that, uh, starting the second, read on through the fifth verse. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountains of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations, and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Okay, now notice what it says. First of all, he talks about the last days there, okay? He's talking to Jews under the Mosaic dispensation. Now, they already knew that Moses had promised in Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15, that there was come a time when God would raise up a prophet like unto Moses. And so they already knew that. They knew that God had made a promise to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed. And so they knew that they were living at a time and they were looking forward to something that was better, something that promised. There are other promises that have already been made. The last days he's talking to here about here is the last days of this Jewish dispensation. They're, they're in that, but the Jewish dispensation is going to come to a close. And in the last days, all right, now, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream into it. In other words, in the latter days, God's going to have a message not just for the Israelites, but for all nations. And all nations would stream in to the temple of God. Many peoples will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. All right, notice the end result. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his path. So all nations will go up to the house of God. All nations will be a part of that temple. The end result is that he would teach them his ways and they would walk in his path. The law would go out from Zion. So beginning in Jerusalem or Zion, the law of God was going to go out the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations. So notice, all nations are coming in, and there will come a time in the last days when the word of God will go out from Jerusalem to all the world, and all nations will be judged as that word goes out. It will settle disputes among peoples. All right, here's the impact on the hearts of the people that, that respond to it. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they trained for war anymore. And so all of this now was to take place at the mountain of the Lord's temple, okay, in verse 2. And so the word is going out. It's going to affect all nations. And the effect on those people that respond to it and become into the Lord's house 
will that they will no longer be a people of war, but they will be a people of peace. They'll beat their swords into plowshares. This, by the way, is a, this is a, a well-known Hebrew idiom that, that they will, for a period of peace, that they're going to beat their implements of war into implements of peace. All right, now, from this one passage, we learn something, and yet we don't learn, learn a lot about the Messiah. You can see how the Jew could look at this, and he looks for the Messiah to come and to have a reign on this earth where righteousness would reign and there would be no war anymore. Well, and the premillennialist that looks forward to the millennial reign of Christ uses this passage. He's looking forward to Christ to come back to this earth and to have this reign. Well, if all you've got is that passage, and if, and if you're not, and if you're taking some poetic idioms as literal, then you can see why that someone can think this way. But what we're going to do as we go through Isaiah, we're going to develop everything that he says. But what we can see for sure here is that in the latter days of the Jewish dispensation, that there's going to be people from all nations coming into the house of God. We can see that the law is going to go from Jerusalem into all the world, into all nations. And we can see that the impact of that law on people's mind is going to be to lead them from one state of mind to another state. Uh, later on, Isaiah will use the statement that of lions and lambs lying down together. Uh, again, just a symbolic of a, a state of peace that would exist as a result of his word going out. Okay, it's interesting, you and I looking back today, it is a truth that Christ was born in the last days of the Jewish dispensation. In other words, in 70 AD, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and so in the last days of Mosaic worship, Christ came on the scene. It's also a truth that that message that was taught by Jesus began in Jerusalem and would go out to the end of the world. It's also a truth that he has been the most positive influence for peace and rightness in our world of any force or being that's ever existed. And so, I mean, with those are, we can look back at just some, if you're studying with somebody that is not a Christian, what you've just read here is a fact, and you can look back at it and show at least those factual things. And we'll see the prophecies develop more as we go further into the book. Okay, anybody with any uh, comment or question over what we've covered so far? Um, Mark? This, the thing on the chronological order of the passages is something that I hadn't thought about, but this is, can this be thought of as connected to the passage that we just read? You know what I'm saying? It's like somebody could let their Bible fall open to Isaiah 2, and it'd be a, a distinct prophecy by itself, and they could misuse it, you know, taking it out of context. Right. Is this in context with the first? It's in, Right. It's, it's in context in that it happens after the condemnation of sin and all. Now, in the chronological Bible, instead of inserting this right here, they give more to Isaiah's sermon. See, Isaiah has a number of sermons where he condemns all the various types of sin. Mm -hmm. And so they take and, and put all of the sins of the people, then they have uh, that prophecy. Okay? But I mean, so it, it just, the, you, you have some of the sins enumerated on in the total condition, and then the prophecy, but in the chronological Bible, it would actually take some of his sermons that specify some of the various sins, and then we'll put this statement. But the, the statement itself of a prophecy, we'll see this all the way through there, it always comes at a time when he has rebuked the people for sin, the situation is bad, punishment is promised, and then out of all of that, he looks forward to a time when it's all going to be better. In this chronological Bible, it pulls out those specific five verses and puts them, on, puts them in later. Right, right. All it does is put some more of his sermon condemning sin before that, and then put that in there. And keep in mind, what you have in Isaiah is a collection of sermons that he preached, you know, over that period of time. In this chronological Bible, in the places where they, you know, like they start, took out those five verses and they took out a couple of chapter one, are they pulling, are they just taking them and moving them into other places or are those separate things? Yeah, they're just, what, what he's doing, they, they're not he's looking at the sermons and, and he's, uh, that you don't have all of Isaiah that he preached on this occasion, just like the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, the, I should say the, uh, the day of Pentecost. You don't have all of Peter's sermon. Well, the same way, you don't, got, you don't have all of Isaiah's sermon. So what he does, he takes from other verses after this of specific things that Isaiah condemned. 
And then he takes and puts all of that together as his sermon, and then comes in with this afterwards. Okay, that's why I was wondering if he was like, he was like pulling different things out of different sermons and distorting it and then no, no, taking them out of context. No, all he deals with in the chronological is he, uh, that the, everything he has is something that's condemning sin, and then he puts this. And just like what you have before this is material that's condemning sin, but it does it in a general way with very little specifics. Well, he goes and gets some of the specifics that Isaiah mentions later, puts them in there, and then puts this. Part. There's still no problem with the talking about the last days and everything, though, with the context of the people that he was talking to, though, I guess. It wouldn't matter no. where this was in uh, the book. No, it wouldn't. Uh, the, right. It, it wouldn't. Uh, the last days, you, he was a preacher to the people. It was the last days of those people, you know, the, the Jewish people. And the same is true uh, with the way the other writers used it. Remember when uh, Peter quoted Joel on the day of Pentecost? Mm -hmm. He said, in the last days, and he says, this is that was Joel. In other words, uh, Peter took that statement the last days and identified it as beginning at Pentecost. And see, Pentecost was the first day of the birth, it was the birth of the church, the first day of the new dispensation, but it was the last days of the, of the old dispensation. Any other comment? Okay, we'll pick up there uh, next, next week.